last year I gave you the numbers three, four, and five as we look through the, the story of the Bible together. The framework, three, four, and five. This year I have a quote for us. So if you're someone that likes to take notes or likes quotes, um, this is a statement made by a guy named Augustine that lived around the year 400. And this is uh, his summary, uh, basically, of revelation of eternity. Here's what it is. And I hope that you will take this in. I hope that you'll think about it. I hope that you'll see how this is, I think, at least a phenomenal description of eternity and revelation itself. So here's the quote. All will be amen and alleluia. We shall rest and we shall see. We shall see and we shall know. We shall know and we shall love. We shall love and we shall praise. Behold, our end, which is no end. So if you can take that in and think about that, amen means true, right? Amen means true. All will be truth and hallelujah, praising God. All will be true, all will be praising God. We will rest. Remember, rest is not inaction, right? Rest is delighting, enjoying in, satisfaction, and rhythm. We were made to work and to delight in what's going on and to be satisfied and who God is and how he made us. We will see and we will know. We will know, we will love. We will love and we will praise. Behold our end, which is no end. So if you hear nothing else this year, I hope that you will hear that as we go through Revelation. So here, let's look together this morning at these four different books, four different verses, or four different sections from these books. This is the word of God. Um, Listen to this. This is life-giving. This is life-giving stuff. Here's what God says from Joel 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit. From Acts 2. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah... And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This morning we're going to be thinking about the idea and the concept of time. And how God wants us to view time, how God views time, we're going to be thinking about time. So, would you pray with me? We ask, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you would indeed open up our minds and hearts to who you are, what you have done, what you say, and how glorious your Son, our Savior, Jesus is. Spirit, draw our hearts and our minds and our affections to Christ, that we might behold you, Jesus, and see you for who you really are. Therefore, we would understand who we really are. We might see how much we need you. And by your grace, that we would want to be like you and be with you forever. We pray this again and again and again for your glory. We pray with confidence because we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Have you ever thought about how fascinated we are with time? Have you ever thought about how fascinated we are with time? Um, there are filters on your phone in which you can take little videos and then you can loop them so you can watch them backwards, right? You have fun with that. Maybe you've noticed that there are a bunch of movie platforms that have been pushing Back to the Future in those films. Remember those? Remember watching Back to the Future? Remember that movie? Where would you go? If you could go anywhere and you had a time machine, where would you go and what would you do? It's kind of fun to think about, right? Most of us, when we think about time, uh, one of the things that, that most comes to our mind is how quickly time passes, right? Well, if you could go anywhere that you wanted to, what would you do? When you think about time, do you have regret? So you'd want to go back to something and try to correct the issue or that issue or make a different decision? Would you want to go back in time to take something in more and enjoy it more because things just seem to fly by so quickly? What would you, where would you go? What would you do if you could travel through time? Maybe... You haven't seen the Back to the Future movies. Maybe you've, maybe you've observed Planet Earth and the incredible series that that is in which you can take a flower and watch the entire lifespan of a flower in just a few moments and the beauty of its growth and sprouting and, and opening up in the colors. We are fascinated with time. Even though uh, uh, any of you Office fans like the show The Office, the American version of The Office. Do you remember when Jim sends a message to Dwight from future Dwight? Do you remember how hilarious that was? We are fascinated with time. 
If you're an athlete, you even know the phrase, father time is undefeated, right? Our age and everything catches up with us. Father time is undefeated. Our athletic ability doesn't continue to increase in this life. Father time always catches up with us in one way or another. These passages are teaching us about time. And if we're going to understand Revelation, we have to understand how God used time and how he wants us to view time. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at these four different passages quickly. We're going to look at these four different passages and we're going to put them under this heading. So we got two points this morning. The first one is this, building blocks. And we got four of them because we're going to look at each of these four passages, four building blocks, and then the bottom line. And we're not going to have four bottom lines. We just got a bottom line. So building blocks and then the bottom line. You got me? That's where we're going. And we're going to think about time. So let's start with Joel. Joel the prophet wrote this prophecy roughly 500 years before the coming of Jesus. And in this little prophecy of Joel that only has three chapters, at the very end of chapter three, what we find is that God promises to renew everything. Literally, heaven and earth are going to rejoin, and all will be a celebration. It will be rest. God promises that in Joel 500 years before the coming of Christ. In chapter 2 of Joel, God is saying these glorious things about the restoration of everything because he wants us to change. If you look in Joel chapter 2, you'll find that God desires his people to repent. He wants us to change and not outwardly. He wants us to have a heart change, to really change. And just as a side note, super quickly, have you ever thought about the power of change? Like, look at your life. Some of the most amazing moments in your life, some of the most significant moments of growth are when you changed, right? Look at the struggles in your life that you have right now. Look at the conflict. My hunch is either you won't change or someone else won't change. Change is incredibly powerful. And God wants us to be a people of perpetual change. Where we are constantly recentering our hearts with God. And we are identifying what doesn't bring him glory and we are pursuing what does. God was telling his people that through the prophet Joel. And here's something else that we read about specifically today in Joel 2. God's promising renewal of all things. He's telling us that he wants us to change. And then he says this. The Messiah is coming. Jesus is going to come. And the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out. There's going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He is going to pour out all over God's people and throughout the world, and things are going to change dramatically. So even if you don't want to change sometimes, the Holy Spirit is going to make you change. He's going to bring you to an awareness of change, and he's going to connect that change to the power of Jesus. So here's the first building block. Number one, building block number one is this. Look forward to a more glorious day. 
Look forward to a more glorious day. Acts 2, second building block. Building block number two. Acts chapter 2, this is what's happening. Joel was 500 years before the coming of Christ. Acts chapter 2 is about 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. Chapter 2 starts out when Pentecost literally was fulfilled. That's what it says in the original. Pentecost was fulfilled, which means 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. What were Jesus' disciples doing? They were hanging out in Jerusalem. Remember, he told them to go there. What else were they doing? They were praying. They were waiting for something. They were following Jesus, waiting to see what was going to happen, not exactly understanding everything that Jesus said. So here they are in Jerusalem, and something happened. It was supernatural. It was supernatural. It just so happened that there were people in Jerusalem from all over, different tribes, different nations, different languages, and they were all gathered together. And some of them who were never taught a different language started to speak a different language. And as they spoke that different language, which they had never been taught, they were declaring the gospel. So that the point of what happened on the day of Pentecost is not that there were different languages. It's the message. The message of Jesus. And that he is what the Old Testament talked about. Joel and many other places. And when this type of supernatural events started happening, people were wondering, well, what in the world is going on? Peter alludes to it here. There were many who thought to themselves, oh man, those folk, they are just drunk. They're just, they're intoxicated. Which, oh, by the way, a little sidebar. You do remember, if you know your Bibles a little bit more, this is for you. If you don't know your Bibles but want to, listen to this. Acts 2 is the reversal of Babel. Remember Genesis 11 where, all, where these people were trying to build themselves a great tower up to God to make themselves like God? Remember that? And then God scattered them, and how did he do that? By giving them languages so they couldn't communicate and work together? What you have in Acts chapter 2 is that God has reversed that. Now the truth of who he is and what Jesus has done is going out to every tribe and every nation in their own language. Because remember, God always finishes what he starts. When he wants to fill the earth with his glory, there is no rebellion that can stop it. There's no language that can stop it. So Peter sees what's going on, and what does he do? He picks up Joel, and he says, hey, these folks aren't drunk. It's only the third hour. It's the morning. People aren't getting drunk in the morning. This is exactly what Joel talked about in Joel 2. This is what's happening. God is making this happen. So here's building block number two. Building block number one, look forward to a more glorious day. Building block number two from Acts 2 is this, is this. What you've been waiting for is happening. What you've been waiting for is happening. 1 Corinthians 10. Well, in this letter, Paul writes to this church in Corinth, and oh, by the way, This church was just like us, full of people that have all kinds of problems, full of people who struggle to bring Jesus into our everyday lives. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, around verse 7, what you find is this. God's people were struggling with idolatry. 
And not only that, in verse 8, it says that they were struggling with sexual sins. Meaning they were all over the place and how they were living their lives and how they were satisfying their desires. So there's a sense in which they were kind of associating with God's people, but at the same time, they were thinking of sexuality in the, same, in the way that they wanted to. It meant that as they were living their lives, God was kind of important, but what their heart was really attached to was God plus something else, or maybe there were other things that were more important than God. Sound familiar? Anybody struggle with sexual desire? Anybody struggle with idolatry? We're the same. And what Paul does is that he picks out little stories from the Old Testament, particularly from the time of the Exodus all the way through the wanderings in the wilderness. Remember, God told his people, you're going to have a promised land. And he brought them out of Egypt. And then they rebelled. And so they wandered around instead of going straight to the promised land. Do you remember this? And the Apostle Paul says, look, those stories in the Old Testament, those are our people. It's not as though in the first century we just started struggling with new things that God's people have never struggled with before. So Paul says, let's think about our people. Let's think about our history. Let's think about how God has addressed these things before. That's why he says these things were written in verse 6 and in verse that we read. These things were written for our instruction. So here's what he does. He says, yeah. Remember those people that were like following Moses? Remember when they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground? Yeah, they were all baptized into Moses. They were identifying with Moses. Is it strange for you to think that the Apostle Paul would think about baptism in terms of the Old Testament? Surprise! He is connecting the idea, this idea about baptism, that it is a mark of identification. So as God's people were following Moses, crossing the Red Sea, which they couldn't do on their own, and they were being baptized. They were being sprinkled. They were being poured. There was water falling on them. They were being baptized into Moses, identifying with him as God's leader, following him because he was following God. And you continue on. What happened? Well, they made it to the other side. And they didn't always like Moses. So there were times when they were complaining about Moses. There were times in which they were saying, you know what? Moses, God, I just want to go back to Egypt. Their menu was far greater. They had a lot better things to eat than what we got here in the wilderness. They were tired of God's daily provision. They were tired of the fact that they didn't have anything to eat and God yet provided. They got tired of that. They even got tired of the fact they didn't have anything to drink, and God miraculously provided that. And yet it wasn't enough. It just got boring. It got old. Here they are, living the same way in the first century. You see, what Paul is saying as he pulls out these different examples is he's not only trying to connect their lives with God's people in the Old Testament to help them remember God's always had one people. We've always struggled with the same things. Not only is he pulling these out to instruct, he's also pulling these things out, these stories out to give us a warning that God's not pleased with this. Paul is trying to tell us that our lives must center on Jesus. That's building block number three. Our lives are supposed to be centered on Jesus. 
That means that every day we ought to expect that we are understanding more about our idolatries, our idols, the things that we think are more valuable than God or more true than God or that mean more in our lives than God. It even is going to address things like sexuality and fulfilling our sexual desires and, and addressing that. The gospel addresses that so that the totality of who we are is centered on Jesus. Because you see, it's in Jesus that we can find the proper way to express our sexual desires. We can also find forgiveness for the times where we have not expressed our sexual desire in the way we should. And we can change so that our lives are centered on Jesus. So whether you need forgiveness and restoration in sexuality or whether you get to celebrate it in the appropriate way as God's gift, it's all centered on Jesus. Building block three is that our lives must be centered on Jesus, not on self. We can't live our lives thinking this way. Well, you know, association, I'm kind of associated with God. Well, association isn't salvation. Perception is not necessarily reality. If you even want to be a little bit more perhaps uh, odd or weird and say it, a Bolex is not a Rolex. You ever been on the street and people have been selling you things that are kind of similar but not the same? Bolex isn't a Rolex. And we know because over time, it stops doing what it's supposed to do. Paul is saying just because we are associated doesn't mean that there's salvation. Center your life on Jesus over and over and over. Hebrews 1. Well, we don't exactly know. Actually, we don't know who the human author is. Maybe God's designed that way so we would just receive it from him. As if this is directly given to us from God. When you read through the book of Hebrews, what you find is that God presents life as a journey. So, when you read through the book of Hebrews, you'll find things like, don't drift away. Do you ever feel yourself drifting away? There are things in the book of Hebrews about thinking about, well, what is your soul really anchored on? What is it anchored in? What is the anchor of your soul? Read other things about the temptation we can have to go backwards in the book of Hebrews. That life is this journey where sometimes we get stuck and we want to go backwards. And God's saying, you don't want to go backwards. I'll try to make this even more plain. Several years ago, I was uh, going through a depression. And the elders of this church were really helpful to me in working through that and finding help. And one thing that I did was to go uh, meet with a counselor, and I met with a counselor for many months. And one of the more profound things that the counselor said to me was this. He asked me the first couple times I went, you know, why are you here and, and what do you kind of hope happens? And one of the answers I gave to him was this. I can't really tell you how far down I am because everything's just a mess in my mind. I, everything's unclear. I don't know how to get back to where I should be because I don't know how far I'm down. I don't know how far I've fallen. And his response to me was this. Dave, 
we're not going backwards. The hope that you have is not to go back to some place that you used to be. This is a new beginning for you. God is doing something new in your life. And you're going to move forward. You're not going to try to get back to where you used to be. God's doing something in you right now so that you can move forward in your life. That lifted a huge weight of fear off of my back. Because I was so afraid that I was never going to get back to where I was. And he helped me realize I don't need to and I shouldn't want to. That God's with me now. And he's working in me moving forward through all this. See, we always can have this temptation to want to go back. Hebrews writes about this journey and says you don't want to go back. We want to go forward. Now here's the main point of Hebrews. It describes life as a journey. And the whole thing in Hebrews is about explaining that Jesus is better. He's better than everything and anything. That means if life is a journey and I'm living with Jesus, it means that my life is going to look like moving from uh, incompletion to completion. From shadow to reality. It means that my life is going to be moving in this journey with Jesus from exile to home. It means that my life on this journey with Jesus is going to move from weariness to rest. It means that my life as a journey with Jesus means that I not only hear God's words, but look in Hebrews 1 in the verses we read, we're moving from, Jesus, from God's words to God's final word. Seeing everything through Jesus. You see, here is the fourth building block. The fourth building block is this. Jesus' blood speaks the final word. So look forward to a more glorious day. What you've been waiting on is happening Building block three, center your life on Jesus. Not God plus something, not self. Center your life on Jesus. And finally, the fourth building block is that his blood speaks the final word. Now I realize you might be sitting there thinking, Dave, what in the world are we doing this morning? Because we don't usually take this many different passages and, and jump around that way, and I get that. So, what's the bottom line here? Well, if you're wondering what in the world is this, you might be thinking more specifically this. What does this stuff that we're looking together, what, what, what is this stuff? Joel, Acts, Corinthians, Hebrews, what does this have to do with Revelation? Well, Here's what it has to do with Revelation. Did you notice the phrase that was kind of repeated throughout these verses? The last days? Did you catch that? It says it a little bit differently. Like if you look at 1 Corinthians 10, these things were for them um, a, a warning, an example, but they're written to us for uh, instruction on us whom the end of the ages has come. Did you notice that? 
In Acts 2, when Peter's talking, quoting Joel, what's he saying? In these last days? In Hebrews 1, God has spoken in all kinds of ways and all kinds of times, but in these last days, God has spoken through his Son? If you look at the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, around verse 17, you'll find that the Apostle John writes about the fact that we're in the last hour. If you look at later in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9, you'll find that Jesus' life is described as being in the last days. If you're wondering what in the world does this have to do with Revelation, this is telling us about time and the way God views time. And here it is. This is the point. The last days started in the first century. We've been living in the last days since the coming of Jesus. And if we come to the book of Revelation and think, oh, well, the book of Revelation is going to tell me about the start of the last days and then work out a chronology of everything sequentially of what's going to happen in the last days. And I have to filter that through some code and current events to understand the last days and where we are in the last days. You've missed it. From God's perspective, he's trying to get into our hearts and into our lives that the last day started with Jesus in the first century. Beloved, we have been living in the last days for 2,000 plus years. Take that in. Revelation is not a book that starts to tell you about the end days and the last times and the last days. Revelation is a book that summarizes all of the last days that have been happening for 2,000 years and however long it will be until Jesus comes back. So if we want to understand Revelation properly, we have to ramp up our understanding of what God says in the Scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament to the Apostle Paul to Peter to John to Jesus himself to God himself saying we are in the last days and we've been there. We've been there for 2,000 years. And if we get that, then Revelation's going to make a whole lot more sense. And that means this, that in our lives, we ought to be obsessing over Jesus. We ought to be preoccupied with Jesus. We ought to be dominated by Jesus. Literally, take this in. We ought to be obsessing about Jesus. And that's really hard, isn't it? It's really hard to obsess about Jesus and obsess about his grace and the gospel and good news. It's so easy to get distracted. I know that. But what every single one of us needs, what we all need, is to be obsessed with Christ and obsessed with the gospel. And I know that's really hard, and here's why. It's really hard to be obsessed with the gospel and to be obsessed with Jesus because whatever our hearts most desire, every other decision that we make will be made to support that ultimate desire. So whatever your heart most desires, you are going to make decisions in your life that help further that desire. Let me be personal. Um, there was a period of my life in which my greatest desire 
was to be a better athlete. More specifically, the greatest desire I had was to play two sports in college. That was my greatest, that was a, my greatest desire. So you know what I did? Every other decision I made was to support that overarching, deepest desire. So on my, class, on my schedule for my classes when I was in college, what did I do? I decided to take Tuesday, Thursday classes late morning and early afternoon only because every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday morning, I was up at 5 a.m. at the gym working out for a couple hours. Come back, go to class, take care of whatever homework I had, then back to exercising, working out for three to four hours a night. So my classes, I made decision on my classes based upon this desire to play two sports in college. It meant that my relationship with girls wasn't that interested in commitment, wasn't that interested in a lot of other things because I wanted to play two sports in college. It meant that even my relationship to alcohol when I was in college was centered around my desire to play two sports in college. So I didn't even have a drop of alcohol until I was in my mid-20s. Not because I didn't desire it, not because it wasn't accessible, not because I was bringing glory to God, but because I wanted to play two sports in college. It meant that I had to pick a major in which it would enable me to try to play two sports in college. That was the deepest central desire of my life and everything else fit into that. So I ask you, what is your deepest desire? What is it? Because every other decision that you make will be to satisfy and bring to fruition that desire. So if your deepest desire is money and to make money, Every other decision in your life is going to be based around that desire. So you won't necessarily be partners with these people because you think they won't enhance your bottom line. It means that you may not associate with people that don't have money because they can't help you get more money. It means that every decision you make is filtered through and to, in support of making money. What if comfort is your deepest desire? If comfort is your deepest desire, what are you going to do? You're going to make every decision based upon the fact that you want to be comfortable. So that means there'll be things about your character and your life that you will never want to have exposed because you want to be comfortable. It means that you will forfeit areas where you could really grow because what's most important to you is comfort. What if it's approval? If approval is the most important thing in your life, then you will have an incredibly difficult time ever being honest with someone because you're terrified. If I tell this person what I really think, if I tell this person what I really feel, they may not approve of me. Therefore, approval is the most important thing. So every other decision that you make is all gonna be moving toward that goal of having everyone's approval. By the way, you'll end up just surrounding yourself with people that just agree with you. By the way, you'll just end up really, re you'll end up realizing that the older you get, the more lonely you are. Whatever is your deepest desire, every other decision is going to satisfy that. Work it out. What is it? What is it? That's why it's so hard to get the gospel deep down into us. 
All of us want to know, what are the three things I can do? What are the four things I can do? What are the five things I can do to be more successful? Be a better parent. Be a better husband. Be a better spouse. Be a better, be more satisfied in my singleness. Whatever it is. And that doesn't work. The gospel needs to go deeper into us because when Jesus becomes our deepest desire, our actions will illustrate that. Right? Our obedience always flows from the heart. And God is not into simple behavior modification. He wants us to deeply change. And he wants us to change because of what Jesus has done. So even in me telling you that the deepest desire of your heart, you're going to make every other decision to support that deepest desire, that isn't even a moralism. That's just a diagnostic. Because the only way that any of us are ever going to change is by first understanding Jesus' love for us. You know, one of the things I like about reading the Old Testament is it has, it's just full of these weird uh, stories. And, it, and if you take them seriously, if you read the Old Testament seriously, you can never ever think that God just loves super moral buttoned up people. You just can't. You just cannot read the Old Testament with any integrity and think that. God's people were liars. They were murderers. They were deceitful. God's people were selfish. I mean, it's everywhere. And I'm talking about prominent people. One of those guys was this dude named Jacob. And part of the reason I like reading the Old Testament is because it gives us all these stories that are really communicating to us Christ. Like Paul was doing in reading 1 Corinthians 10. He's going to the Old Testament saying, we're just like them. And there was Jesus there and all kinds of stuff. Well, do you remember the story of Jacob? It's a great love story. It's a story where he really, um, he really wanted to be married. And, and he met this guy named Laban who was, you know, uh, not exactly a straight shooter himself. Um, and Laban had two daughters. And, and you remember Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. Remember this? But here's the, here's the catch. His father-in-law said, if you want to marry my daughter Rachel, you got to work for seven years. Now, I don't know how bad your relationship has been with your in-laws, but guys, my hunch is whenever you, if you went to talk to your father-in-law, my hunch is he didn't say you got to wait seven years. My hunch is he didn't say you got to do whatever I say for the next seven years and then I might let you marry my daughter. I don't think that happened, even though if you may feel like it did sometimes. But when you read back through that story, there are some amazing words in there in which it says that Jacob worked seven years for Rachel and it felt like very few moments had passed. Something like that. Do you get the point? Jacob's number one desire was to be married and to be married to Rachel. And that meant everything that he had to go through for seven years felt like just a passing moment because of how great his desire was to marry Rachel, to marry his bride. And oh, by the way, we know he ended up spending 14 years, right? Even so, working the hard, doing the hard work of seven years of labor, 14 years of labor, and thinking that just time passed, does that sound familiar to you? Do you remember this verse? For the joy that was set before him, 
Jesus endured the cross? Do you remember that? If there's ever going to be any change in our lives, if we are ever going to obsess over Jesus, it will only be because he is becoming more precious to us. So, Jesus, the guy that wrote the Ten Commandments, was willing to come in human form and submit himself to those commandments and live under them for the joy that was set before him. The God-man, the one who never had an imperfect thought, word, or deed, was willing to grow up in a home with a mother and a father who were sinful for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He was willing to be misunderstood, largely misunderstood, almost his entire life for the joy that was set before him. He was willing to endure incredible physical torment, the torment of crucifixion for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. Do you see that whatever pain and hardship Jesus endured in living in this world, it seemed like joy to him? Because of how much he loved his Rachel. How much he loved you and me, his bride, the church. Beloved, the only way that we will ever change and obsess over Jesus, which is what God wants us to do from Genesis to Revelation, is to understand what he has done for us. 